So how many of you normally come to the 930 service? You raise your hand? Okay. Good number. So that service is, is often uh, packed and crowded. Uh, three weeks from today, on September 29th, we're going to be opening the venue service. And so that's the new building at the north end. And on the right side, we have a, a room that will seat about 150 to 175. And so that will give us more, more space during that hour. And so th- this, room, this service is not overflow. It's not like if you can't make it in big worship, you can go down there. We, we want this to become your preferred worship service for about 100 to 150 of you. And so uh, the message will be recorded, the first sermon, uh, first service, and it will be projected on the screen. The, the music will be live, and so there will be a worship team down there. But consider if that's something that, that you would like to check out, and, and uh, yeah, we think it's going to be an amazing venue for worship. Well, some of you are aware of, of what happened at the commencement of Morehouse College this past May. Uh, Morehouse College is a historically black men's college, and uh, the commencement speaker this May was a man named Robert F. Uh, Smith, and he happens to be a billionaire. And he gave this moving 35-minute speech. He first of all talked about the challenges and the disadvantages that African Americans have had in our country in the past and continue to have in our day. And he gave five rules for life, this, this, this basic wisdom for living. And then he announced that he had created, he and his family had created a fund that would pay off the student loan for every 2019 graduating senior. Okay? And so everybody that was in the room, student loan wiped out. They estimate the fund was about $40 million. Some of you are graduating seniors, and you're thinking, what would it be like to hear that announcement? But I want you to imagine what it would be like if you're standing in line before that commencement, and a man walks up to you and just out of the blue asks you the question, uh, it turns out he's the commencement speaker. You don't know that, though. He asked you the question, how would you like for your, your student loan to be paid in full? Okay, how would you answer? Well, you don't know this guy. You don't know what he's worth. You don't know what he's willing to do. And so you say something like, well, that would be great, but I would like $95,000, and my starting salary is going to be about forty. so... It's going to be 15, 20, I don't know how many years it's going to take me to pay it off, but thanks for asking. If you knew who this man was, and you knew how much money he had, and you knew what he was about to do, and he said, would you like your student loan paid in full, what would you answer? You'd say, yes, please, I would like that. Thank you for doing this for me. Today we're going to look at a passage in John 5 where Jesus walks up to a man who had been sick for 38 years. And he asks him the question, do you wish to become well? And this man did not know who Jesus was. He didn't know what he was capable of doing. He didn't know what he was willing to do. And so he gave this complicated answer and basically said, I am the least likely person, least likely person to be made well. And that was his answer. But if he knew who Jesus was and what he was capable of doing and what he was willing to do, his answer would have been very different. Do you wish to be made well? Yes, please. That's exactly what I want you to do for me. And so today we're continuing our sermon series entitled Answering Jesus. We're looking at six passages in the Gospel of John. And today's passage in John 5 really confronts us with this question. Jesus asked this question to every single one of us in the room. The question is, 
Do you wish to become well? Do you wish to become well? And so as we prepare for this passage, I want you to, to bring to mind your, your greatest felt need, that, that big thing in your life that if God addressed it, you would say, man, I would have so much relief. I would experience so much more joy and satisfaction. I could be so much more fruitful than I am right now. Well, what is that thing that you would want God to do in your life? And so for you, it could be medical. You could be like the man we're going to talk about today. It may be that you have a, a medical conditioning condition that's life-threatening or life-altering, and that's, that's your issue. Or it could be relational. It could be that there's a relationship in your life, and it, it causes you so much stress, so much pain, that if God would do a healing, bring about healing in that, that area, man, what, what freedom you would have. Or it could be a sin issue in your life. It could be some addiction that, that just dominates your life, and it just quenches your fruitfulness and your joy as a follower of Christ. Or for you, it could be financial. Things may be so tight that you have to think about money every single day. And so it could be any number of these things. It could be anxiety. It could be depression. It could be uh, any number of issues that you're dealing with. And what we're going to see is that Jesus notices and Jesus actually cares uh, about those issues in your life. But we're also going to see is that he looks past and through our felt needs, and he sees the deeper needs of our hearts that we don't even know need to be healed. He addresses things that we can't even anticipate. And so today we begin in John 5, uh, we'll begin in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. And so these are like colonnades. So think about columns, uh, uh, stone columns that have a roof over them. So you could walk through these colonnades, or people in this case were resting in the colonnades. And so it was either, you know, kind of a pentagon-shaped pool with five colonnades, or more likely it was two rectangular pools made out of stone and there was a colonnade on each of the four sides and one colonnade down the middle. Archaeology would suggest that that's, that's the, the configuration there. Well, we read in verse 3, in these, in these porticos, colonnades, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then in the New American Standard uh, Version, you'll see that the rest of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is in a bracket. If you have the NIV or the ESV, the, the, the verse and a half is not found in the text. It's in a footnote or in a margin note. And what that suggests and what that denotes is that these, this verse and a half is not in the oldest, best manuscripts for the Gospel of John. It was probably written later as an explanation for something that comes later in, in the passage. But this is what we read. He says, they were these, this multitude was waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And so the common thinking in that day apparently was that periodically an angel of the Lord would come down, he would stir up the water, and whoever got in the water first was healed. 
As you can mind imagine, that put some people at a great disadvantage, right? Probably the people that needed healing the most. And one such man was, is mentioned here in verse 5. He was perhaps the least likely person to get into the water first. He says, a man uh, was there who had been ill for 38 years. Some of you are older than 38. Where were you 38 years ago? 38 years. I was actually a fourth-year junior uh, 38 years ago. But that's a long time, a long time to have a condition. Then we read verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? And if he, had, if he knew who Jesus was and what he was capable of doing, he probably would have answered him, yes, absolutely. But notice the answer he gave, verse 7. The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And so in his mind, the question, do you wish to become well, was, can you figure out a way to get into the water first? Can you figure out a way to rescue yourself? He didn't know that Jesus, who Jesus was and what he could do. Jesus was asking him, do you wish for me, the Lord of the universe, the great physician, the, the good shepherd, do you wish for me to make you well? But because he didn't understand who Jesus was, what he could do, what he would do, uh, he gave this complicated answer. And so uh, in our day, Jesus looks us in the eye, and if you make eye contact with Jesus, he will ask you this same question, do you wish to become well? And for us, we often mishear the question, like this man, many times we think Jesus is asking us, Considering your past, considering the things you've done, considering the things that have been done to you, are you committed enough? Are you spiritually mature enough? Are you smart enough to find a way to rescue yourself? Can you f figure out a way to be made well? And we think about the, the, the scenarios that are most common, and we tend, tend to come up with the answer, actually, that's highly unlikely. It's unlikely that I, given who I am, given my past, will be made well. And so sometimes we need, to, we need to understand. And so we need to understand this question more clearly. And so our, our effort is almost always involved in healing. We're usually not passive. But the question Jesus is asking us is, do you want me to heal you? And so that's the question Jesus is, is asking. Do you want me to make you well. And sometimes, quite honestly, we really don't want to be made well. And if that's the case, we should admit it. That's the starting point in our conversation. So it could be anger. Anger has a, a lot of functions in, in our lives. And anger isn't always, always this burst of outrage, this, this passionate you know, fury at somebody else. Sometimes it's sarcasm. Sometimes it's withdrawal. I'm angry at you, so I'm going to withdraw my presence. Sometimes it's passive. It can be all these things. But we'd say, yeah, of course I won't get rid of my anger. But then we think about it and we're like, no, actually, I get other people to do what I want them to do through my anger. Okay? It's effective. And so really we'd say, no, I don't. Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Or maybe we have this, this, this sin issue in our lives, this, and it's, it's pleasurable. Uh, Hebrews talks about the passing pleasure of sin, and our sin may have to do with food or sex or drugs or alcohol, 
They say, yeah, in theory, I, I want that issue taken out of my life. But we think about it and we realize, actually, you know, I can't imagine what my life would be, be like if I didn't have that escape and that pleasure. And so, yeah, somebody else, I could absolutely see it. But for me, thanks, but no thanks. And so we've got to be honest about these things. When you're talking about the God who, who sees and understands everything, there's absolutely no reason not to be honest. And so we've got to understand what question he's asking, and we have to be honest. Do we really want to be made well? Well, back to John 5. Most of the time when Jesus healed someone, he made a comment such as, your faith has made you well. He, he most often healed somebody in response to their faith. But that's not the case here. This man did not have faith. He didn't even understand who Jesus was. Look at verse 8. And Jesus said to him, get up, and we're going to find that out later. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well. So Jesus healed this man, and he did what Jesus said. And he picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. And so what a fascinating thing. Jesus was not constrained by this man's lack of understanding and lack of faith. And Jesus can do this, okay? Jesus can act unilaterally. And we should thank him that he often does that. Where would we be if the only time he did something for us is if we, we had this faith and this understanding and we knew exactly what it was? No, Jesus, Jesus knows. He understands. He does things unilaterally. But we're told in the Gospels who he is, and so he wants us to have faith. And so when Jesus says, do you want to be made well? In light of this passage and many others, the answer we should give is yes, because of who you are, because you are gracious, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in loving kindness, because you're the good shepherd, because you're the great physician, yes, make me well. And we should submit to his ways. He makes people well in different ways, and there's different time frames. We usually want it to be instantaneously. It's not always the case. That's an option. I know, I know a man, he came to Christ, and he would say, the, the, the moment I accepted Christ and I was born from above, my addictions were gone, okay? He would say that. That's, that's his experience. Quite often, my experience, my observation is that most often it happens progressively over time. God heals us and makes us well as we follow him in discipleship. And so we have to submit to his ways. Notice the last comment there. He says, John makes a comment, now it was Sabbath on that day. If this were a movie. This is where you hear the ominous uh, organ music, right? Because it, it foreshadowed that. That's given us a clue that the Pharisees, the, the Jewish authorities, are not going to like this, that he had healed on the Sabbath. They cared a whole lot more about their rules than about this man's wholeness. Look at verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, I'm just doing what this man who healed me, I'm doing what he told me to do. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. So clearly this man didn't, Jesus didn't heal him in response to his faith. He didn't even know who Jesus was. 
Notice in verse 14 that Jesus seeks out this man in order to speak to him. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, there's an encouraging thought, right? Okay, they probably don't teach you this in med school. You know, when they say, after you have a successful case, tell the patient you have been healed. <laughs> don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, why would Jesus say this to this, this poor man who had been healed? Well, uh, stick with me. Let me uh, here's, here's the way I understand this. And so he said... I've addressed your most obvious need, your felt need. You, you needed to walk, and so you have been made well. I have healed you physically. But there are other issues. There's this sin issue that you need to pay attention to. I've healed you physically. You need to become well spiritually so that nothing worse happens to you. And, and that statement, I think, just, just uh, reflects the, the, the consequences of sin. If you've lived very long or you've lived very thoughtfully, you know that sin has devastating consequences. Jesus is actually telling him there's something worse than being sick for 38 years. He's not implying that all physical ailments or all troubles are the result of sin. When we get to John 9, uh, the disciples are going to see a man who was blind from birth and they're going to say, Whose fault is this? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus is going to say, neither. That, that's not a correct assumption. And so we don't go around judging people in that way or making those type of determinations. At the same time, numerous scriptures make clear that sometimes, on occasion, sin is, does lead to illness or sickness. Sometimes in 1 Corinthians 11, it actually says some of you have died because you ate of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so it's possible sin does have devastating consequences in our lives. But I think Jesus is telling this man, you become well physically, make sure that you also become well spiritually. And when he says, uh, don't sin anymore, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is not saying you need to stop sinning on your own power, by your own Uh, will, you need to stop sinning. In the Gospels, the only way a person can stop sinning is by becoming his disciple and following him. And so that's the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And so this life of discipleship leads to a life of not sinning. And so this is an invitation to discipleship, what Jesus is, is telling this man And so we see here, Jesus met this man's greatest felt need by healing him physically, but he continued to pursue him that he might experience wholeness in this comprehensive sense. And the same thing is true of us here today. And we can usually identify this this deep uh, or this this obvious felt need. Yes, I need this relationship healed. I need to be healed in, in body uh, I need you to, to deal with this, this addiction, this overwhelming sin issue in my life. But what we don't anticipate is that sometimes, yeah, God wants to address that, but he wants to do a much deeper work. He wants to give us wholeness in ways that we can't even anticipate. And so this means that we should answer the question, do you wish to become well, by saying something along the lines of, Yes, Jesus, because of your death and resurrection, uh, because you were the great physician, because you were the shepherd of my soul. Please make me well 
in every way that you desire, by any means that you choose, however long it takes. Verses 15 through 18, very quickly, says, The man went away and told the Jews that, that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. So that's good news. God doesn't take a, a day off from doing good works, okay? The Sabbath doesn't mean God, God is like, uh, passive and just watching the world happen. And so Jesus said, that's what my father does, that's what I do. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he, he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I like Mark Buchanan's uh, comment. He says, the Jewish authorities, for the Jewish authorities, you must never heal on the Sabbath but it's okay to plot the assassination of those who do. Okay, so they were just so, I had everything so wrong, so wrong. And so what a fascinating passage. What a, what a question Jesus asks us. You know, as I studied this passage uh, this week, uh, numerous people came to mind, but someone who, who kept coming to mind uh, was, was Julie Coonrod. And I've asked Julie if she would come and share her story, and she has graciously agreed. It's been a long day, third service, but uh, Julie's wrestled with this question from Jesus, do you wish to become well? And so thanks for, for coming. Yeah. Um, good morning. So some of you know my story. Um, in fact, some of you are a very dear part of my story. And for that, I'll always be very grateful. For those who don't, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in October. Um, cancer is a scary thing, especially when it happens to you, but it's not the only type of suffering that we have in this life. Um, so my prayer is that my story will be encouraging to you in whatever battles that, that you're facing right now. So my cancer seems to be a, a bit of a bad one. Um, it's triple negative, stage three. It was found in my breasts and my lymph nodes, but uh, not spread further than that. And of course, once you're diagnosed with cancer, you become kind of obsessed with getting well. I don't want to have cancer anymore. And I remember talking to Jesus about whether he would heal me miraculously or through medicine, or not at all. And I'm not at the end of my cancer journey yet, but it seems that um, he's using a terrific group of doctors that are caring and smart, and a couple of them from this church, in fact, um, to heal me. I've had chemo, a couple of surgeries, a summer of radiation, and I've got another round of chemo to go um, in, this, in this journey. And it's been a costly one in many ways. Um, time and effort money, suffering, and disappointments, just to name a few. But that's what you do, because the answer to the question, would you like to get well, is yes. <laughs> Very loud, yes, please. So that's the physical part. And I do want to be healed. I want to be well. But there's more than the physical. Uh, one helpful thing for me um, during this time has been to write updates um, it's been a good way to process things and also to keep people updated because I'm absolutely desperate for prayer. So um, during one especially hard week of chemo in December, I wrote, wrote these, these words. 
Um, cancer is a dark place. There are lessons to be learned in the darkness, and I don't want to miss a single one. Isaiah 45.3 says, I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. I will do this so that you will know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. I've never spent so much time awake with my eyes closed. Darkness comes in forms of physical pain, disappointments, dependence, and the like. My prayer is that we can open our spiritual eyes and learn what we can through this journey, like seeing the stars in the night sky, for curiosity, courage, and faith not to miss anything. So I feel like that speaks a little bit to the go and sin no more, kind of the wholeness of life and um, wholeness in all areas of life idea. Um, one of the things that kind of trips me up in the spiritual life, I'm not sure if it's a sin really or just a lie that I believe, but it's my difficulty believing that God loves me. I am very confident that he's good and that he provides eternal life and that he loves you. I just have a hard time thinking that I matter that much to God. Cancer's a funny place to learn this lesson, but... Um, I think that's one I've learned. That might be a common thing, too, and it's one that I think prevents um, wholeness in life. So one day early on in chemo, I had a day that I couldn't really even get off the couch. Um, Scott left for work in the morning in the dark, and he didn't get home until it was dark, uh, you know, those short winter days. And I didn't have the strength to get up and even turn on the light. So I just laid there in the dark. I didn't have any interaction with anyone that day. It was just a dark day. And I decided that I needed to get a plan in place to get uh, to have people come and help me and visit and, you know, like turn on my light for me. And I was thinking about how to do that all through the night. And what I felt like I heard from God was, trust me, I'll take care of you and I'll bring people around when you need them. And uh, so without my organizing it, He's brought people to mind that I could call for help, and he's also, I think, some days just put it on people's hearts to contact me. Don't ever underestimate the power and the encouragement of following those little promptings if it's just a random visit or text. One of the treasures I've gained was to trust God to take care of me, to believe that he really does see me and loves me. And he loves you, too, and I think he's delighted when we believe him and when we trust him with that. I've also experienced prayer in a new way. So here's what I wrote from the hospital the day after my mastectomy surgery in June. He said, I've been thinking about prayer and God's intervention in our lives and how all that works. I would have to say that last weekend was one of suffering with uncertainty and the dread of surgery, probably some of the worst days of this cancer journey for me. I know many of you have prayed maybe especially uh, lately, for the insurance glitch and surgery. And now I have to say that yesterday and today, days that I was completely dreading, may turn out to be the kind of days I look back on to mark the faithfulness and goodness of God. I'm even wondering if it's possible that my scars will remind me less of cancer and loss and instead more of his goodness to me. My healing, comfort, and peace seem a miracle and answer to many prayers. I'm so grateful. Psalm 65, 11, and 12 says, Even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grassland of the wilderness becomes a lush pasture, and the hillsides blossom with joy. This feels like what I'm experiencing right now. How can that be? 
Only God's love and strength could account for that. Thank you for your prayers that may have moved his hand for me. I don't want to forget that experience of prayer. Not that I was done with cancer, because I'm still not, but that I was able to have a glimpse of wellness in my soul in the midst of it. So like all suffering, cancer stinks. It's hard. It's definitely not a path I would choose for myself or for for anyone. But suffering has a way of teaching lessons about things like humility and gratitude. I had to learn the humility to accept with gratitude the many gifts that I've needed to make it through. And about compassion and community as you become a part of a community of sufferers and many other lessons. So the challenge is, as it was for the man by the pool, to live. I hope to live on because my body is healed. But more importantly, I want to live in wholeness and wellness of body and soul because of the lessons of discipleship learned along the way. Thanks. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sustaining Julie over the past year. Thank you, God, for um, her desire to be made well in every way. We thank you for the healing you're bringing to her body. Thank you for the amazing medical staff we have in this community and uh, all that can be done and is done. For that, we're thankful. Thank you for the many people that have surrounded Julie and Scott and have come alongside them in prayer and encouragement with tangible physical help. God, we pray for ourselves, and you know each of our hearts, and some of us can barely fathom that we could ever be made well in some ways, that uh, we can't be made well in, when it comes to our relationships or our, our walk with you or in an area of sin or perhaps physically. God, we pray that you will give us faith, that we'll recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for us, uh, who you are, what you're willing to do for us. We pray, God, that we might not give up and lose hope. We pray, God, that we would, would uh, be honest before you and in all these areas where we don't even know where we need to be made well, that we would have honest conversations with you and we would invite you into the, the broken places in our lives. And God, for your name's sake, we pray that we would allow you to make us well in a comprehensive sense. God, we want the body of Christ to be uh, pure and spotless. We want you to do this work. God, we want to be faithful until Christ returns. We want to represent you well. And so, God, we, we ask you that you will open our eyes and give us the faith we need to participate with you and to walk the path of discipleship, the narrow, the narrow path that leads to life. And so, God, we commit ourselves to you. May we be a, a deep encouragement to one another. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.